The catechism teaches that parents are the first educators of their children, but that's just because we're there when they're born. We educate our children in how to eat and drink and talk, but we're not the last educators. The church is one of the educators through the sacraments of initiation. It's not the last educator. Society, the public, is one of the educators, and we need good, strong public schools or parochial schools that work within a public imagination and imaginary uh, for our society to flourish. And so I uh, don't support the homeschooling movement or most versions of homeschooling I'm aware of. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Crab and the Cross podcast. I'm your host, Mary Rose, and this is part two of my conversation with Dr. Sam Rocha. I initially reached out to him because I had seen some of his writings on critical theory, critical race theory, speaking about it in a, in a relatively positive light and also taking down some of the popular critics of it uh, that we see in the media today. And so because that terminology is, is creeping up into the discussion of education, especially public education, I wanted to talk to somebody who might be able to give a, a little bit more of a nuanced perspective. And so he gives a lot of helpful historical background and context for those theories. Um, I think it's good to be suspicious when a story or a narrative in the media is, is painted simply as good versus evil. Um, you know, one side is totally wrong and one side is totally right. Um you know, we, we also talk about the critique that universities are, are just these like hotbeds of Marxism and, you know, totally anti-truth, anti-knowledge, um, even anti-science today. Um, and, you know, he, he teaches at a university in Canada. So some would say that's, that's sort of the belly of the beast. Um, I don't know. He, he just adds a lot more nuanced um, context to, to a lot of those critiques. And then we get into some of his educational hot takes, which are really fascinating. He has an appreciation for classical education, but he has some some criticisms that I think are are worth considering. He does have harsher critiques of homeschool, uh, homeschooling, um, even though, <laughs> as he freely admits, he himself homeschools his children. Um, and so I will be having someone later on in the season come on to talk about homeschooling and, and the Catholic homeschooling movement. Um, so we'll we'll table that discussion for now. But if you are an educator, uh, whether you've experienced in public or private uh, education, I definitely am interested in your thoughts on this episode. I think there's a lot here that needs to be brought to the forefront of discussion. I mean, with Dr. Hamby, we kind of address this question of what is education and what is the best method for educating and what is the best curriculum to educate from. But there's still this broader question of like, how should the school system work in the first place? And that's what Dr. Roach and I get into towards the end of this discussion. And it's a real challenge because I think, uh, you know, you're seeing people, especially uh, Christians and, and conservatives kind of retreat from as Dr. Rocha put it in, in part one, the, the secula, the, the secular realm. Um, but there's a way in which that can leave everybody else sort of high and dry. Um, and, and, and I don't think it makes for a healthy republic, a healthy uh, country, like if, if we are so stratified in our, in, our, in our education. Like 
there has to be, especially as Catholics, we have to have some kind of concern for the common good. And so when we just, you know, pull our kids over here and, and teach them in the, in the you know, most pure and perfect way, that's great. But is that also going to contribute to the common good in some way? Um, and, and this is where I, I'm like so out of my depth because you get into, I mean, we, we talk about some of the differences between the school system in Canada versus the U.S. or um, continental Europe and the U.S. And, and in, in a lot of countries, the government is more involved in subsidizing <laughs> in the subsidization of even like religious schools, you know, and, and I think in, in America, we kind of like tense up at that. But on the other hand, there's a way in which that can make um, this vision of education more accessible. So I don't know if you if you are in education, I definitely am interested in hearing your thoughts. I want to continue having these discussions. Um, you know, there's a lot more to explore here. Let me know your thoughts. Um, you know, tweet at me at Mary's Depp or comment on um, on Instagram. Let's let's get the conversation going. Okay, uh, I think that is everything. Make sure you're subscribed via whatever platform you're listening on. And now here's part two of my conversation with Dr. Sam Rocha. So then what would be the sources? Well, this is this will kind of actually take us into critical theory a little bit. But like, so those sources of inequality of ability, what are they? Are they rooted in something physiological, like the structure of the brain or the body? Or are they rooted more in environment? I mean, um, yeah. So when I when I talk about the limits of ability, I'm here talking very specifically about kind of disability. Okay. Um, and so in that case, I'm thinking about, um, for instance, the uh, the deaf community has a very robust account of its own intelligence written by its own community with its own terminology. And it provides, I think, among the most powerful uh, responses to this multiple intelligences, you know, uh, account of things. Uh, and the account basically says we lack nothing in intellect. Hmm. We just happen to not see the way you see, but the sight of our eyes not having it actually gives us better access to other senses in other ways. And we see through our hands and we see through our ears and we, you know, <clears throat> so to me, there's nothing in that particular discussion of ability that threatens it. Um, the kind of inequality though, that we find at the level of society, social inequality, inequality of class, income inequality, um, inequalities around, for instance, life expectancy, um, uh, infant mortality rates, these kinds of things. We can sometimes, I think, over-naturalize those things from their social environment and say, no, they're just somewhere in the DNA or something like that. But I, I on that view, say, no, there are things like social equality. And to me, a count like multiple intelligences that says, no, we're unequal on the inside. Hmm. I say, no, we're equal on the inside. There are inequalities on the outside, and we need to deal with those inequalities. Not all of them are um, equally harmful and perhaps we can think of some of them as not harmful or actually helpful but by and large large-scale social inequalities that drive a certain quality of human flourishing down and a certain quality of human flourishing up um, those i think are a deep moral problem in addition to being a social problem and i think that depending on what we mean when we say critical theory um, 
there have always been critics of this. The Catholic intellectual tradition has had people critiquing social inequality since highest revelation form scripture and the Acts of the Apostles. Um, but also the early church fathers were deeply attuned to this as well. Um, and when you look at monastic communities and their rules and stuff like that, we obviously have a lot of uh, interior expertise as a church. But on the outside, there have also, also every other human community has had thoughts about these forms of equality and inequality as well. Mm-hmm. Critical theory, like capital C, capital T, basically refers to a very particular post-war generation in Germany in the town of Frankfurt. <laughs> and Frankfurt School critical theory is kind of the most like classic account of what critical theory is. And most of these people were Jewish. Most of these people had just lived through the war. Most of these people um, were also um, persuaded by certain accounts of Marxism. Most of these people were also deeply hostile to certain forms of totalitarian communism, especially Soviet communism. And most of these people also were engaged in the kind of conversation of continental philosophy in Europe around Frankfurt at that time, which would include things like existentialism, phenomenology, and all that kind of stuff. Um, One of these people, Pope Benedict, wrote a book-length dialogue with or had a dialogue um, called the Dialectics of Secularization with Jürgen Habermas and and Benedict XVI. Um, Habermas was a member of the Frankfurt School, an atheist, Marxist, critical theorist. Now, that kind of critical theory in Frankfurt School is very specific. It has books, it has authors. And there's like another critical theory that kind of is the invention of cultural studies that comes out of Birmingham, England. That's where like Stuart Hall and those folks were. They also had some things in common, but not all the same. What most people are talking about critical race theory, though, they're not talking about Birmingham or Frankfurt. They're talking about the United States and the time where people inspired by critical theory, critical legal studies, legal scholars working in law schools saying, hey, we're reading Adorno, we're reading Horkheimer, we're reading Marcuse, we're reading, um, uh, you know, uh, Habermas. And we want to apply some of these critical theory resources to the study of the law, American law. Critical legal studies was the first place where some people started saying, yeah, we're talking a lot about class and about power, but we're not really talking about race. And the civil rights tradition seems to be about class and power, in particular, the class of race. And so we should talk about that. And those were people like Derek Bell. Eventually, critical legal studies and critical race theory split because critical legal studies were like, no, class in the Marxist sense is all we want to talk about. Mm -hmm. And you're adding categories to that with race, and we're not cool with that. So critical race theory in the work of primarily Derek Bell in the early 70s breaks away from critical legal studies and starts through teaching and through some seminars that didn't really happen until the 80s to develop um, this particular way of thinking about American law within the American civil rights tradition. Now, you can probably tell right now that we're a long ways from Frankfurt. We're a long ways from Birmingham. We're a long ways from World War II, Jewish people, dyed-in-the-wool Marxist, phenomenology, existentialism. And so all this is to say is that a lot of the critical race theory talk is a trick. Hmm. It has nothing to do, actually, with a serious, considered, historical understanding of critical theory in either sense, nor the way critical theory and critical race theory split through CLS and CRT. Yeah. And it doesn't really accurately represent what Derek Bell's 
main theses were. One of his first main theses in a paper he wrote, um, well, his main thesis is, is in his book, he wrote um, Race, Racism in American Law in like 1973 or something. That was, a, that was an important book because for the first time ever, a legal scholar analyzed constitutional law through the lens of civil rights law. In other words, let's reread all of the constitutional law of reconstruction <laughs> and let's read it not through a class analysis or through an American constitutional law analysis, but through a race analysis. And there was a lot of law like the 13th, 14th and 16th amendments during reconstruction that were about race, right? Yeah, right. So he did that. And so that justified a race conscious reading of American law because there's a lot of laws on the books that relate to race, even ones that say they don't, right. um, like education laws, you know. And then in addition to that, he came up with this theory of called convergence theory, where he actually argued that like Brown v. Board of Education didn't happen because people were against racism and they finally won the argument. He said the way that um, Brown v. Board of Education was won, not only before the Supreme Court, because he was one of the NAACP lawyers arguing under Thurgood Marshall, um, but also within wider society, is that there was a convergence of interest between um, whites and blacks. Hmm. And it was this interest convergence where people were motivated not by anti-racism, but by self-interest. For instance, a lot of Soviet Cold War propaganda against the United States said, look at Jim Crow America. Hmm. This is what the Americans say is a free society. Yeah. How could that be? So there were good interests by anti-communist, red scare uh, conservative politicians to get rid of Jim Crow. And this converged with the interests of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King and black activists who wanted to get rid of Jim Crow. Now, this convergence theory interest, I see, is in a, the first on the ground theory of critical race theory by Derek Bell. And if you listen to people talking about what CRT is about, you'll never hear them say the words interest convergence. Yeah. You'll never hear the name of Derek Bell. You'll never understand its relation to American civil rights law. And you'll never know the fact that honestly, critical race theory is only taught in law schools. If your kid is studying critical race theory, congrats, they're in law school. That's amazing. <laughs> like, how did they do that? You know? So wow. I don't know. I, that To me, this isn't very serious. It's more the kind of propaganda that you can see popping up. Look at the 90s when they're talking about political correctness in the schools or about any number of things. I mean, there's a book from the 50s. It's called God and Man at Yale mm -hmm. by uh, um, Buckley Jr. Yeah, It's literally about how the Ivy Leagues are corrupt and they're corrupting society and blah, blah, blah. This is like the oldest story in the book. You can read Bloom's The, the um, Something of the American Mind. Oh, yeah, it's the same the art. Mind. Yeah, the closing, it's the same argument as the 54 got a man at Yale, same argument as Jordan Peterson's 12 rules. I mean, these people are just recycling the same ideas and the same critiques under new words, wokeism now, mm -hmm. critical race theory, whatever. It was other words before. PC always seems to work for them, right. but I don't take any of it very seriously. I mean, so that's actually kind of interesting. I mean, because I think, I don't know, I've, I've read some of Alan Bloom's book. I haven't read Buckley's book. Um, mm -hmm. I've read some of Peterson, but I guess you, you see, it kind of takes us back to that question of tradition where a lot of people look at the school system, the university system, they say like, ah, we've, we've moved too far in the realm of progress and we've forgotten our, our tradition, you know, there's no room for God in school and things like mm -hmm. that. And so they kind of 
maybe it's a bit of just finger pointing or scapegoating. Um, but they say like, well, the universities are run by secular Marxist kind of people and they're boiling down their ideas. Um, but I mean, I guess to phrase as a question, do you, do you think there has been a change in the like maybe Western university system that, um, you know, these various figures writing now or in the nineties or in the, fifties are like accurately noticing. I mean, sure. Women can vote now. Uh, (laughs) People, people of color are enfranchised in our society. Mm -hmm. People are concerned with preserving the enfranchisements of women and minorities and concerned for other people who, for reasons beyond their control are limited. Um, I mean, if you look back at like the transgressions of the university, it was at one point supporting women's suffrage. Mm-hmm. It was at another point supporting civil rights. It was at another point, you know, supporting the equal and humane treatment of LGBTQ, you know, plus community. And the, you know, it seems like the great offense of the university is the fact that out of the university, which by the way, is a pre-Catholic institution. We can go back to Plato and the Garden of Academus, you know, 500 stadia outside of Athens. There's different models of the university. There's Plato's university, which was, let's leave Athens because my family just killed Socrates and I'm <laughs> mad at them. There's the Aristotelian model, which is let's stay close by, let's have a lyceum, let's, let's be, you know, in the world. You have the Socratic model, which is very anti-institutional, just walk around and ask people questions. These models have replicated over time we have the Prussian model, the, the, the Prussian research university ideal. We have the British collegiate model of the collegium. We have the American liberal arts school tradition. Uh, we have the French école and, and, and stratified, very complex, but very kind of bureaucratic university system. People talk about how the university, it's like, well, hold yeah. on. There are many universities. Mm-hmm. The history of the university is broad and deep, and it doesn't come down to one thing, mm-hmm. you know? Um, Catholics have worked within universities. I talked about the University of Paris. We could talk about the University of Milan, the University of Salamanca. The idea that Catholics would be like, oh, the university. <laughs> our greatest home, where we have done some of the most consequential work uh-huh. for our human race, has been, been within universities. And these universities, I hate to tell you, and I'm speaking here quantitatively, empirically, having spent, I don't know, from Franciscan in 2001 to yeah. the present in universities, there are far more church-going observant Roman Catholics mm. along with Christians in these universities than there are secular Marxists. Mm. In my department, there are so few Marxists that I teach Marx because there's no one else around who can teach wow. Marx. Yeah. So, you know, go to an economics department where you would assume you would find the secular Marxist because Marx was a political economist, how many Marxists are you going to find? Uh, go to a philosophy department where like maybe, oh, that's where the critical theorists. You're going to find Anglo-analytic, if you're doing it in English, you're going to find analytic philosophers doing work on like philosophy of mind, meta-ethics, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. Um, you can say like, oh, I hate Peter Singer because he's a utilitarian and consequentialist. Okay, great. You can't call him a Marxist though. <laughs> you know? Right, right. Yeah, so I mean, wh- then where do you think this trope is coming from? Like, why do you think it's just people from a place of intolerance, or do you think there's like a like something else that it's rooted in these critiques of the university? 
Look, I think some of the stupidest things I hear in the university are people's criticisms of the Catholic church. Hmm. It's not because they don't have good reasons to here in Canada. I think there are good motivations behind some of the um, hostility to, to Catholicism, especially after Kamloops a few summers ago. Hmm. My heart can understand where they're coming from, but my head can't reconcile a lot of the things they say because they never took any time to like read two books by, by, by any Catholics. But the problem is Catholics are just as idiotic when they talk about the university mm. that they never go to, that they never spend any time in usually, right. or that they have some anecdotal bad experience and they use as the archetype for their going on. Every anti-Catholic I've met has an anecdotal bad experience that they use it, or they have the, the church sexual abuse scandal right, or, right. you know, really concrete things. And even though those concrete things are real objective moral harms that deserve an enormous critical response, they still don't make them right Mm. about things they say about the church. They still don't make them right when they say that Catholics are like anti-intellectuals or don't believe in evolution or, you know, those things just aren't true in the same exact way. A number of the things that the kind of culture wars conservative classes in the American media and politics use to say that is wrong with the university, they don't come from a place of truth. You know, they don't come from a serious place. And I think the best sign of that isn't just what they say, but who they're in dialogue with when they say it. One of the biggest problems of people who say weird stuff about Catholicism is I don't know if they know any Catholics. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know if they've been to like the Catholic church, knocked on the door and be like, hi, can I, not that right. that would make it better necessarily. Sure. Who knows who answers that door? <laughs> right. But like, if you go to my parish, St. Mark's, the person who's going to answer the door, Father Rob Alor, he's a Jesuit microbiologist and the pastor of our church, the chaplaincy of UBC. And he does hospital visits too for, you know, uh, sacraments of the sick he's not going to spout anti-evolutionary stuff at you right, right. he's going to talk about the grandeur of the human genome you know sure. so in the same way that these people who say easy things about catholics for who knows what reason need to talk to a catholic i think a lot of the people who say these things about universities and university people and secular world they probably need to talk to some of the people they're talking about and i don't think they do yeah yeah No, I think that's a good point. It's kind of like what we were saying earlier when we were starting off the discussion. Like if somebody is not part of your in-group, you assume they're wrong and you dismiss them. And Mm -hmm. all you do is kind of have that confirmation bias where you start to look for, oh, these are all the the things that they're wrong about. And this confirms my suspicion that they're on the wrong side. And you don't have to be friends with everybody. You don't have to be nice, right? I think there's room to be contentious. Like one of my big challenges, including to Peterson and others, is like, so these are your claims. These are my claims against those claims. If you wish to test yourself at the very least, give me a phone call, send me a zoom link. Let's have a public rational discussion and let's let people decide what they think is true or not true. Like that is at the very least, I say the bare minimum in an agonistic, not antagonistic, but in an agonistic way, we can test our claims. We can go and ask people who we think bad things about if they are in fact bad And we can come away and let others decide whether our account of their badness is true or false. Right, right. Yeah, and I think it's actually in the tradition of Aquinas, in the tradition of Socrates, to have this dialectic. Yes. um, (laughs) 
it's more interesting, A, but also I think it's it's the best tool for learning is to have two sides kind of have the disputatio, you know, essentially. Exactly. And the beautiful thing about those is just like Thomas's disputed questions, you learn that there's not two sides. There's like nine. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, um, his respondeos are to this and to that and to the other thing and two overlap, but another one doesn't. And, yeah. and to me, that's the thing. Like I get excited with my students. I get excited you know, with my, with my peers in the church, whenever we're getting into so much detail that it's like, whoa, well, the entrance convergence thesis that was given in 1976 is very different than the reappraisal that was given in 1984. And does that, do either one of those even account for the disintegration of Brown v. Board of Education in 1996? And what do we make, you see what I mean? Yeah, yeah, like yeah. you add a little bit of passage of time, you add a little bit of detail and serious people who are willing to do the work. And then to me, then you're really having something like a serious considered um, approach to truth. I think yeah. a lot of people think truth is like a one and done. Yeah. You know, but just like tradition, truth is a constant present. Yeah. Truth is a constant present. The truth that whenever I call out to Jesus, he comes to me in prayer. That can't happen once. That has to be repeated every day and every moment and every period of my life. And those dry moments where it seems like he doesn't come, I have to last through those moments and continue. And that's what the spiritual life is. There's no difference to me between that and the intellectual life and other forms of the devout life we can think of. Right. I mean, to me, that that sounds like the most Catholic view you could say, because as much... I hope so. (laughs) Right. I mean, there shouldn't be this distinction between the spiritual life, the intellectual life. It's all about coming to know the truth, who is God, and then the things that God has made. Um, And so maybe, maybe the only critique you could, or maybe the best critique you could make of, you know, any sort of secular person academia is is simply that they don't have the spiritual component. You know, I think that's true. But at the same time, one thing I have to say, because some people might wonder like, wow, where's this guy come from? Whatever. (laughs) Let me remind you, I went to Franciscan University of Steubenville. I was raised in the charismatic renewal movement. I listened to Rush Limbaugh in the (laughs) nineties, Dr. Laura Schlesinger. Uh I, um, um, I grew up on the right without question coming into what we can call, and I don't mind calling it the left, certainly critical theorists would call it the left. They had a a real sense of what that meant, you know. By the way, a lot of the critical theorists after the war were a little bit like, uh uh-oh, in 68, whenever a lot of the new left turned against them. Mm, Yeah. And this kind of, the students and the protests and stuff. So even that's a complicated story, right? Right, right. Um, I have found, though, within the secular left in the university, a lot of virtue. Mm. I found people who are Ethic, more ethically motivated than I am with far fewer reasons that come from a spiritual or theological origin, but who care about, for instance, ecology or care about the um, fates and fortunes of the poor or of women or of the marginalized. And I've had to face the fact that my faith clearly had not motivated me to the kinds of commitments that it motivated them for. And even when I disagree, perhaps, with their prescriptions for those problems, I have to admire the sincerity of heart that is not because they're afraid, the fear of the Lord or fear of damnation, but simply because of 
an objective response to the truth of a particular injustice or a particular circumstance. And so they've actually helped me find um, the depths of natural reasons that exist for the good. And they've edified my faith. I think I have a closer and deeper relationship to Jesus Christ and a better understanding of what it meant for God to become man today than I probably did before. And some of that, of course, is just the unmerited work of grace. But part of that grace has been the ability to encounter virtue and piety and truth in those who do not profess the name of Jesus. Yeah. I I think that's really important to say because um, there can be an arrogance that we have as Christians. And and you see this, I think this is with all religious people, but you see this with the Pharisees. It's like, Mm -hmm. well, we know we have, we know we're following the laws perfectly, so therefore, you know, we, we have it all. Um, and I think, you know, the, the Christian who stays tucked inside this neat sort of ideological box um, is just going to yeah. end up being in that, that same kind of self-righteous. Absolutely. And I love that you use the word Christian there because it's a, it's a fault of mine. I'm so, I often don't say Christian and I often say Catholic. Mm. When I mean Roman Catholic, I don't mean the Melkites. I don't mean the Syriacs. I don't mean the Coptics. I don't mean sure. the Orthodox, you know. And I, but Christian is a great word because it also points us, I think, to the deep, longstanding ecumenical work that has been done in the church and in the Christian community since at least 1054 when we split. Right. And that inspired, you know, the Second Vatican Council. I, I've become much more deeply aware that my understanding of the council as this let's refine the truth of Roman Catholicism to the nth degree that was my reading of the council early yeah, on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I've learned that, no, that was, that was largely the work of, of the church to try and recover the capacity for its long lost ability to call a truly ecumenical council. Mm. And the loss of, of ecumenism in the church is the deepest and lo- one of the longest standing wounds in our church. And so one of the forms of healing that we can bring to um, the church is a deep sense of ecumenism and the idea that Vatican II, Vatican I, all of the church councils and stuff are not just about the particular survival of this one institution within Christianity, but it's about the fates that are tied together amongst all Christians and that extend from there from Christians to all religions and the interreligious work that goes with that. And then from beyond that, of course, like I said earlier, the the deep moral commitments that can happen between people committed to a, a real good and objective, you know, moral project. Right. Even without the religious. No, I, I completely agree. And I, I get nervous when I see people upset at ecumenical acts as though we shouldn't want to be unified. You know? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, uh, anyways, we can, we could go in all directions with that. But um. This has been really fascinating. So to kind of wrap up, I want to just ask sure. you about a couple of contemporary or maybe contemporary is not the best word, but but like current trends or theories in education and just kind of get your your quick takes on them. Cool. Okay, great. <laughs> Fun. All right. All right. So um, the first one is the uh, Montessori method, the Montessori mm-hmm. school. Yeah. I mean, Maria Montessori was a uh, scientist um, who was in many ways a a Catholic, rational, 
she was she's kind of like the Italian Catholic Dewey in many ways. Okay. Um, deeply influenced though by this kind of romantic sensibility that I think exists still to this day on the continent in Western Europe. <clears throat> I like a lot of it. I like so much of it. I like the respect for the uh, intellect of the child, the the refusal to paternalize in a certain way. I do think though that one thing people forget is that Montessori had a heart for the poor mm. and wanted to provide to the class, the Italian classes that did not have access to the great schools, the ancient great school, the kinds that Augustine would have gone to yeah. as the son of a Roman and a North African. And um, I worry about the kind of elitism of today's Montessori education, the expense of it. I also think that some of its programmatic and prescriptive elements while they're understandable in terms of certification and whatnot they're not um they have a kind of dogmatism to them that is again um very catholic but um not something that i probably would endorse um uncritically the, the most the best thing i can say though is that some of the people i know who are most invented invested in montessori education are some of the most serious and non-dogmatic educators I know. And so I have a hard time, um, I have a hard time being critical of it whenever I know so many people doing such good work and I don't want to take away from that work. Right, right. Yeah, but I think you bring up a good point about just um, the elitism in education. It's really sad to see it in Catholic school too, but yes, Catholic schools yes. aren't, I don't know what it's like in Canada, but they're not affordable to it. No, you're They're right. barely affordable it's to the middle class, let alone a lower class. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. We've gone from the parochial model, which was about serving the church at its lowest jurisdictional rung to unfortunately uh, the boarding school model, Yeah, <laughs> uh, which um, is an aristocratic model. Yeah. All right. So then what are your thoughts on like the classical education, meaning um, I, I guess sometimes it's called great books education, but you're, you're seeing this even with elementary schools now that they're learning Latin and stuff like that. Two quick provisos. One, I'm the product of a great books curriculum. Okay, okay. I, I, everything I know, in some ways, I, I learned, not only because of the curriculum, but because of the the approach, the historical approach and stuff. Some of those things are really good, and I'm very grateful for, for them. Some of them are been some of the biggest obstacles and bad habits of my intellectual life, but it's important. Second of all, my kids have been, by all intents and purposes, educated with a deep love and respect for the classics. My eldest is fluent and added Greek and classical Latin. Oh my gosh. My middle, yes, my middle child, he's 16. My middle wow. child is, has finished all of Wheelox and is now translating Latin freehand. We'll move into Greek soon. So look, this is a person who's going to say some harsh things okay, okay. From, a, from a bed of experience. Okay. One, code word for classics is being very bad at math. <laughs> it's simply the case. Uh, the neglect of mathematics by so-called, and they should really be called neo-neoclassical, um, is the signature aversion and inability in mathematics. And this goes totally and entirely against the Greek tradition. Hmm. There is nothing Hellenistic about being bad at math. This is the tradition of Pythagoras. This is a tradition of Plato who said, you must learn geometry before you can read me. So first of all, they have a deep problem at the level of mathematics and science education. They're very bad at these two things. And being bad at those two things in general, is going to inhibit a person going into college and university education more than it's going to help them. Second of all, 
their curriculum where it's strong often looks like Don Quixote. If you know the story, Don Quixote, uh, Cervantes. (laughs) So Don Quixote was this guy who was in love with romantic um, epics, thought he was a romantic knight and was chasing his love and had a vast library where he learned all this in. And he's just a weirdo who goes around doing stuff that's extravagant (laughs) and odd. That's most of classical education is creating little Don Quixotes (laughs) and who turn into this kind of LARPing as reality model. And so they smoke pipes and do all this stuff. That's 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 entirely and totally against the spirit of anyone who has any respect for the Hellenistic tradition or for these things. So if you're going to classical school in order to be bad at math and science and to become a LARPing weirdo, then to be perfectly honest, you would be better served at any low quality um, school as long as it's safe. Right. Um, I'm very concerned too about the fact that like in Chesterton Academies, there's been a, a, a longstanding now and documented history of anti-Semitism. Oh, wow. There's been a longstanding and academic uh, uh, and well-documented um, issues surrounding things like, like we talked about, rumors about CRT and all this stuff, anti-racism and insensitivity to those things. It's um, reflection sociologically is largely one of uh, white middle-class to affluent um, conservative uh, kind of like a mini um, fortress model for Catholicism. It is not the secular yeah, yeah. model we talked about. So unlike Montessori education, which is very worldly, which yeah suffers from an elitism and maybe an over prescriptivism, but where I can think of really good work, I can only think of a few, and they're important to say that they exist, uh, Trinity Academy, for instance, I've, I've been there and seen the model they're doing in, in, in Oregon. It's entirely different, it's, but it's deeply aware of the vulnerabilities of the model. I don't know of any classical education model, though, that is not immediately self-reflexive and self-critical that I would ever endorse, much less send my children to. And my children, by the way, are way better educated in the classics than any person in Chester and Academy today, you know, send me your 16 year old, you know, let's put them down, make them, you know, you know, work on coin it, addict, whatever. Um, so I'm, I, I, but I think it's really dangerous right now. And a lot are being, are being seduced into the great books, even yeah. out of total goodwill and total innocence. And like, why shouldn't we be into books? My tutor of the great books, father Conrad Harkins, may he rest in peace. He changed my life because he said, this program about the great books is about providing you with the most liberal education possible. We want you from here not to avoid books, but to chase every book down, to never be afraid of letters. And he confronted me as being someone who was scared to death of letters. I was in school. I'm going to date myself during the Dan Brown years. Oh, okay. Yeah. And, you know, there are a lot of idiots out there who I went to high school with who read Dan Brown in in college and wanted to know why the Catholic church was this way because they read a fiction book, really badly written fiction book, you know. Father Conrad said, just read the stupid book (laughs) and then tell them what you think. And I read it and I was like, wow, these books are like, they're like worse than Redwall. Like these are (laughs) terribly written books. Why would you insult yourself with the literary experience of reading this? Like, I mean, read Louis L'Amour or something, you know, if you're going to read Pulp Fiction, just read it and, and go on with your day. But don't use this as an as a lens for the church. So I think a lot of classical education and great books is attractive 
but for all the wrong reasons. And it's producing people who are really bad at math and acting like Don Quixote. <laughs> That's great. Um, I love that take. Um, what about homeschooling? Again, full disclosure, my kids have never attended school before. We would be classed as homeschoolers yeah. through 16, 14, and nine years. Um, we've been members of homeschooling co-op. We, um, we've done nothing but what one might say homeschooling, both in the United States and two different states, Indiana and North Dakota, and now in British Columbia. So two countries, uh, one province, two states. I think I know a good bit about homeschooling. And again, I would say that, you know, we are, um, I am an academic who literally lives on a university campus surrounded by the treasures of the university. Um, and it's very conservative of me, me to say this, but I, I see knowledge as a treasure. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and libraries and uh, tutors. I do sometimes think about the fact that my... Um, my children's education is, is not the kind of education. It suffers from some of the deficiencies of the Montessori model. It's, it's an elitist, deeply aristocratic through the intellectual aristocracy of the academy uh, available to my children simply because it happens to be the circumstance of their father's station in life. It's not something I would have been able to have at all. Um, I think what society needs, it, it's not a sustainable model for the social good of education. It's just the best education as a father that I could give to my kids in the presence of some good alternatives, but ones that weren't better. And so in good faith, I couldn't quite give that to my children. Maybe that makes me a hypocrite. Yeah. Okay, I'm willing to have that conversation. But I think what society needs and what I fight for as an educator and as an academic and what my children will fight for and are fighting for in terms of some of their volunteering work is the best possible public schools that one can have that are uh, free to people who want to attend them and that offer them there not only safety and security, but also the very best knowledge that can be offered to them with teachers who have the freedom to teach in an environment that is not only safe physically, but also intellectually safe for them. So I believe that overall the homeschooling movement in the United States in particular was largely born of desegregation when you study historically. A lot of homeschooling was by people who didn't want to send their kids with African-American children. Wow. Um, that was the evangelical start. You'll notice that Catholics weren't a part of that because we had our um, protest to the public schools in the 19th century in the form of the parochial Catholic schools run by the orders primarily or, or by parishes. Um, we have a mixed record on segregation and integration, but that is not our record. Catholics joined the evangelicals around the 90s, that great uh, moral majority, yeah. you know. And that's whenever we jumped into the homeschooling movement. It was in, it was actually also built not only to avoid African-Americans, but also to avoid us and our schools. And we kind of unwittingly jumped in without thinking about it at all. Hmm. And so I think the homeschooling movement is uh, overall a, a, a socially uh, deleterious movement in the United States. It has roots in both racism and anti-Catholicism and largely makes people really bad at math, <laughs> really quixotically weird. It's almost as if classical education is like, let's be, have all the deficiencies of homeschooling, but we'll call it school, you know? <laughs> so, you know, I think homeschooling and classical schooling are kind of, yeah, you'll probably get a slightly better education in a classical school. Mm -hmm. um, but a lot of that just depends on what kind of homeschool, what kind of co-op, what kind of curriculum and all that stuff. 
Um, But what we need is a society. And I think what Catholic education, Francis just recently talked to a Congress on education. The catechism teaches that parents are the first educators of their children. But that's just because we're there when they're born. Mm -hmm. First, developmentally, we educate our children in how to eat and drink and talk. But we're not the last educators. The church is one of the educators through the sacraments of initiation. It's not the last educator. Society, the public, is one of the educators, and we need good, strong public schools or parochial schools that work within a public, you know, um, imagination and imaginary uh, for our society to flourish. And so I uh, don't support the homeschooling movement or most versions of homeschooling I'm aware of. There are these kind of free schools that have an entirely different tradition that are kind of the the hippie tradition. Um, People who homeschooled because their kids didn't get to study with African-Americans. Like there's a whole nother kind of counter memory to that. It's much more niche. Um, It's not the main evangelical stem that is primarily the driver of homeschooling. Right, right. Um, Okay, one one more. Um, This is a little bit different, but your thoughts on, this is more of an American policy, but the school choice. um, Ah. So I know of some charter schools that I think are using the policy freedoms that school choice movement has brought to them to do exciting things pedagogically, including, by the way, some people taking non-science and math-averse, non-socially conservative approaches to the classics and stuff. I'm thinking of a particular charter school in Minneapolis that I have a former student teaching at as a history teacher and a Latin teacher. I know of other schools that have used these policies in order to provide just a flat-out better locally available um, alternative to uh, serve underrepresented um, and poor um, neighborhoods and groups. I don't think, though, that the good in this sense, inverting the saying, should be the enemy of the bad at the level of policy. The school choice movement has always been, since you could say the evangelical turn against Um, integrated schools in the 1950s about emptying the purse of the state and reallocating that purse in any purse that would take it. There's not a constructive policy there. If if, if teachers want to take it, fine. If a corporation operating as a charter school wants to take it, that's fine too. Um, This emptying of the public purse for education with no constructive public alternative, I think is is simply an affront to the common good. Um, and while it does in case by case application, I do think freedom is this ama- amazing thing that um, it can create really, really great and really, really awful stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And the really great stuff is there. I, I know of it. I would be intellectually dishonest to, to um, misrepresent it. But I also know that the, the, the movement of the freedom is ultimately to try to disestablish public education and to remove um, the state entirely from the work of education. And this particular goal and this particular mission, I think, is deeply, deeply evil. Um, because 
the affordance of education, and here I'm going to sound like a doyen, to everyone, the, the fact that everyone should be able to read and not just read mechanically, but read critically. Yeah. Everyone should be able to ask the question why and know what it means and understand if the response is adequate or not. This abil- this public ability is one of the most fundamental you know, abilities in our society. Um, I would say even more than economic ability, you know, the human capital theory that if you get a lot of degrees, you make more money across your life and therefore have a better life. It's hard to argue with sometimes, you know, you definitely don't want to invert it just for the sake of argument. Um, But I think there's a deeper sense of human capital theory that says, if you can read, if you're alphabetized, if you can write, if you can speak, if you can speak back to power with a certain kind of intellectual dignity, um, also with a certain kind of civility. These are universal goods for the common good. Anyone who's seeking to disestablish or dismantle the ability to hand that out is no different than the people trying, and they are, trying to remove social security from our elderly people or trying to remove access to food like women, infants, and children or welfare or things like that. They're just as evil to me. Anyone who's trying to say, if you have a baby, you don't get free diapers is just as horrible a person, I would say, as a person saying that if you have a baby, they don't get to learn to to read and write unless I can control that purse. Hmm. And so you see school choice as as the individual citizens trying to control the, the money? No, individual choice is just a right-wing policy approach to try to disestablish the public allocation of funds for education. Uh, and that goes from teachers and teachers unions. And believe me, there's a lot of problems with teachers unions. There's a lot of problems with teacher education. There's a lot of problems with teaching. Uh, and I'm not a romantic or naive about that. And I used to, by the way, be so, um, aware of my critique because I teach teachers and I teach in teacher education. (laughs) I used to be so kind of hypersensitive to that, that I was willing to give passes to school choice, you know, teach for America, you know, some of these movements that are within the orbit of that, because I was like, well, I hate teacher education at my university. I wish I could change it all. It's not helping. It's, it's producing really bad teachers. But the more I've looked at it, I've realized I was wrong about that. The goal of, of school choice, which is a movement that only exists in the United States because welfare states like the Nordic countries and like Western Europe, they've enfranchised the public purse of education and the public nature of education because they've enshrined it at the highest level of what they do. Imagine, for instance, if someone had a, and I kind of perversely wish this existed. Imagine if someone had it about privatizing the military. Mm-hmm. Look, anyone can fight. Anyone can be militarily trained. What if you tra- want to be trained in judo and not in the American academies? Or what if you want to be trained in MMA fighting? Shouldn't we be able to have a platoon of MMA fighters and a platoon of judo fighters and, 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 and just let that give them a check and let them figure out their own thing. They'll buy technology from Elon Musk and other people, <laughs> and they'll go out and they'll fight our wars for it. Everyone knows that's a disaster. <laughs> Even if you don't agree with the military industrial complex and all that stuff, right. that's the same exact thing that the project of school choice is trying to do to our schools mm. and to our teachers and to our children. Mm. But you don't think that there, sh- you, you think there should still, there should still be allowed to be like parochial schools, like religious schools as an option. I think they should be publicly funded. Okay. The United States is the only place in the world where religious education is privatized. Oh, wow. Here in Canada, 
if depending on the province, but in BC, public schools are subsidized by public funds up to 50%. Okay. In Ontario, they're 100% funded. In France, 100% funded. Wow. In England, 100% funded. Americans also don't do one thing. And this is what school choice doesn't do. Look over their border at every other country in the world. It's like American healthcare. Yeah. Every country in the globe has some form of social medicine, except for the US. And they're like, we can't figure this one out. <laughs> Every, there are good capitalist options. There are good socialist options. There are good hybrid options. There are good private, you know. <clears throat> it's the same thing with schools. Mm-hmm. Public schools exist in the entirety of the world. The only place where, and so people often like to pit school choice as anti-religious or religious. No. Right, right. Imagine if you got a public subsidy um, through public education with the option to attend either at a hundred or, or 50% or 75 as an ability to attend, um, a private school, it wouldn't be a voucher. It would be within your eligible versions of options. Cause like in Canada, if you're a Francophone, you have the right to be educated in French because it's one of the official languages. If you have a child, you can say, we are Francophones. You say, we elect that they attend a French, uh, uh school. You are allowed to do that by right in the same sense that if you're a Catholic and you attend a parochial school, you have the right to say, as a Catholic, I want to receive uh, my child's education to be as a Catholic. And in that case, with the Catholic schools, unlike the Francophone schools, there may be some amount of tuition because the archdiocese, on the other hand, says, yeah, we want to be subsidized, but not 100% because we're worried about how much freedom we'll have in that to make decisions and stuff. And those are serious complications. Like, look, just saying no to school choice doesn't mean figuring out throwing an altar, right? Right, right. This, the state and the church will have different arrangements. I was just reading, uh, actually teaching a book by a Brazilian priest, Father Mario de Souza, who is, uh, wrote a Catholic philosophy of education. Mm. He was born and raised in Pakistan. Pakistan is a Muslim-majority country. And the state in Pakistan has publicly funded Catholic schools for people to go to. And in those Catholic schools, they are enshrined in society as good schools, among the best schools. People forget the Catholic Church is the largest non-governmental organization that has provided healthcare and education in the history of our human race. Mm -hmm. Our schools all over the world are not going to go under because American school choice Mm. doesn't happen. That's so stupid. It's beyond (laughs) stupidity. I mean, our hospitals and our schools are going to continue the way they have. They are one of the great prides of our social justice arm of our church around the world. D'Souza noted that in the Catholic schools, there were many Muslims who wanted a Catholic education. And they provided them with one, including with the ability to study the Quran within a Catholic school. Wow. And he talked about this, how this was an approach to education that existed before Vatican II. Wow. He was in school yeah. during Vatican II. So with the school choice, like the U.S. homeschooling movement represents, is a tiny provincialism of Americans who aren't even in dialogue with their Catholic educators off outside of their borders right. and who haven't even, like, you know, cracked a policy that wasn't American and who present these false dichotomies and stuff, but none of them are real. Um, the Catholic Church is going to continue to provide the, some of the highest quality education in the world with zero uh, effect on the school choice envir- environment in the United States, period. Wow. 
Yeah, I think, I mean, I think you're, you're right. Um, we often have this very myopic view in, in America that if we're doing it a certain way, it's the best way. And there is this. But it's like- objectively not. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's literally, I mean, quality of life in the United States is looked down upon in Canada, in Norway, and many, many countries look at America as like, why would anyone for the sake of maybe a higher gross domestic product have right. such a wretched quality of life, right. you know? And I don't think Americans know that, but <laughs> you know, the IRS won't let me expatriate. They will charge me over $6,000 to reject my passport if I get Canadian citizen, because they want me to continue to pay taxes. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I would happily give it back if I could just have my Canadian passport, which I don't have yet. So that's one reason. Yeah. But this idea that like, oh, everyone wants to be here. No one wants to get rid of it. No, that's ridiculous. <laughs> Most people I know who aren't American don't want to be American. And they don't think Americans have a particularly high quality of life. They do know that the concentration of power through gross domestic product and through a military industrial complex in the United States is unmatched and unrivaled. Right. And I mean, congratulations, but it doesn't mean you're happy. No, I I mean, 100%. I like, you know, from my time traveling Europe, um, you, you just notice a difference in, in the people. Um, I mean, you know, not to say that there's problems everywhere. There's no perfect society. Oh, of course, but, of course. But, you know, I just, everything about America is often excess um, in, in a way that I think it actually is poisonous to us. Um, and I don't know, we, we could go on and on about the ills of, of a society, America versus Europe. Actually, that would be an interesting conversation. Yeah, I mean, if I could add one thing, the, yeah. the, 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 the real story on education in the United States of America, and this yeah. is true even before that common school movement, yeah. is that American education for the um, American project only happens at Andover, at Exeter, at Benedictine Abbey, at the Sidwell Friends School. In other words, look, no one is getting an education in the United States of America. If they're not attending the expensive boarding schools that have been here before, oftentimes before the U.S. was created. Hmm. The presidents of our countries are not attending school choice schools or public schools or local parochial schools or the really nice boarding school in town that no one can afford. Right. No, they are all attending Andover, Exeter, Benedictine, if it's the uh, Kennedys, um, Sidwell Friends School if they're their Obamas. No one in Congress wants to send their school kids to any of the schools we're fighting over. Yeah, They are sending their kids to schools where they're not offering them great books educations, classical educations, but they are teaching them Latin. They are reading Homer, but they're also learning math. Mm-hmm. They're objectively really, really, really good schools. Mm-hmm. And the thing that drives me crazy about the American experiment is that Americans continually not only pretend like there's no good education in the world, but they even continue to be duped into the fact that everyone who runs American society agrees on where the good schools are. And those are not a part of the school debate at all Mm -hmm. because you're not supposed to go to them. Mm -hmm. You're not supposed to have access to them. The motivations for my education of my children, I'll give a little bit more access to that has been, how can I replicate Exeter and Andover? For my kids, I'll never be able to go there. My parents and my grandparents and their grandparents never went to school. But I learned enough 
that I found out a few things about these places and what mm-hmm. they do and what they don't do. Yeah. And I don't idolize them and I make substitutions and I use the resources I have. Right. But the real answer for anyone who's interested in American education, I think has to be like, where do people who actually argue, uh, who actually implement our policy over us actually send their kids to school? And we'll find out that it's neither Chesterton Academy, nor is it the local public school, nor is it the elite prep school. Right. It's a boarding school. Right. In the East Coast. Right. And so, and you think that those schools um, have the best educational philosophy? A lot of times um, they're, they live on their tradition, you might say, on the laurels of their tradition. Right. A lot of times they have a very progressive, for instance, approach to their pedagogy, mm-hmm. um, uh, the relationship between students and teachers. Um, but look, at the end of the day, it's all social capital. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, when you graduate from Exeter, you get a letter and you can go to Bates or Bowdoin or Yale or wherever you want. Why? Because there are generational agreements between the elite Ivy schools and expensive liberal arts schools and these boarding schools that are like a partnership agreement. And you go there in part for your access to higher education in those halls and those corridors. Is the elitism of that project uh, good? No, it's not good. Does it produce the kind of citizen that everyone seems to be wanting to be? Yes, it does. Why? Because they read well, they write well, they can think, they're good at math, you know, so on and so forth. Um, I believe in a public education that is literally making Andover and Exeter a public option for every single human being. Why? Because of their dignity, because of their fundamental equality of intelligence. That's, that would be my public school option. And I think Catholics can say, we can help. (laughs) (laughs) We have a lot of schools. We have a lot of intellectual traditions that run every bit as deep as the ones that run over there. We can help to make this a reality. Instead, what they're doing is saying, this is threatening us and our ability to live in the world and we need to fight it and we need to fight for religious freedom and all this kind of stuff like that. And you know what? Not only is it not in good faith, it's also fighting for scraps. It's fighting for laughable educational gifts and products. It's yeah. below us, I think. Yeah. Wow. No, I mean, that, that's, that's, that's kind of fascinating. That's, that's deep to think about. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm talking to a couple different people about education, and so I'm excited to, once I have these interviews done, to kind of mesh them together <laughs> and, and sort of sure. see what, what comes about. But these are, you know, for the most part, I just am, am listening because I'm trying to puzzle through these. I mean, these are these are difficult questions, and especially when you think about how, um, you know, one of the main motivations behind Catholic education is to provide universal education um, and how we've fallen into this elitist model in in more recent times and you know how do we escape that i think is is going to be one of the more important questions and and also if we don't solve that question i don't think catholic schools are going to be able to be sustained because they aren't you know affordable um right yeah i mean i think public education as we know it isn't public at all Mm. it 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 exacerbates um anti-public realities like poverty, mm-hmm. um, property tax levies. I mean, th- there's, there's so many social problems with public schools. So don't get me as some kind of a, you know, critic of school choice from sure. some kind of a utopian idea of public schools. No, sure. I believe it, that in order for uh, a school to truly be public and for uh, the education to truly be universal, as you said, and I do believe that is the position of the church, mm-hmm. um, 
we need to seriously address the radical inequities and the radical um, lack of resources provided. School choice doesn't show any ability to address that. All it does is it impoverishes the public model uh, as almost like a, I don't know, it just seems like it's like, we hate the state, we hate the government, we want our money back, we don't even like taxes. And when you talk to these people, ask them, well, tell me what you think about taxation. Most of them will say taxation is theft. Yeah. Well, that'll give you a clue, right? (laughs) And if that's their philosophy about taxation, and that's their same philosophy about school choice, then they just don't want to pay taxes. And who are the classes that don't want to pay taxes? The ultra rich. (laughs) Yep, yep. Wow. Well, this has been a really fascinating conversation, Sam. I'm excited to share it um, and also just go back and re-listen to it. Uh, And I'm also excited to see what my educator friends think of it. So where where can people find you? Um, Yeah, thank you for asking. Um, The place you can probably find me most regularly is on Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) So um, at Sam Rocha, uh, D-O-T-C-O-M. That was the best handle I could get in 2011. Okay. my website is a little bit out of date, but it is samrocha.com. And I'm going to hopefully try to make that a little better place to be um, here coming up. But um, yeah, and then they can also find me at UBC at my faculty homepage and they can find my email address and, you know, send me a a note about why I'm wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Good. All right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. Um, Like I said, I really enjoyed this conversation. I'm looking forward to sharing it. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Bye.